Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 103 of Control the Controllables. It's not every day that we get someone who's been as high as number 12 in the world on the podcast. I stopped working on my game. I was kind of forward in the mindset, okay, no, I'm now... Uh, 33 in the world, next year I'm going to be top 20, next year I'm going to be top 10, and then I'm going to be number one. But that's not how it goes. Uh, so I stopped working on, on my tennis. I was uh, not improving and I had that dip. Uh, and then I changed my team. I, I changed my mentality as well. And you know, I, and in 2018, I had my uh, breakthrough into the top 20. And it came with the, with the change of my mentality and the change of, of how I play, I think, as well. And that was, of course, Borna Korich, world number 24, was as high as number 12 not so long ago. And lots of fantastic results as a junior. Then he's gone on to have a, a successful professional career, but maybe not quite pushed on as many thought he would. He lost a cl- close quarterfinal match with Zverev, at the 2020 US Open, and it's only a matter of time before he starts breaking through into the business end of the Grand Slams. He's so insightful, he's so open and honest in this chat. You know, I do try to challenge him on some of the reasons why he's not quite kicked on into the top 10 in the world, and he duly obliges with some great answers. I know you're going to love this one as well, so sit back. And enjoy the show. Here's Borna Korich. So, Borna Korich, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Hi. Hi. Very good. Thank you. And you? Very well. Thanks, Borna. A, a big honor to get you onto the onto the podcast. Okay. It's, re- it's, it's really great to have you. And just, yeah, before we start getting into your tennis, you are in a hotel room. I guess there's been a lot of hotel rooms for, for tennis players over the last few months. So so how are things going with you with that regard? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been going pretty good. I was uh, I was uh, actually back at home uh, for the last 10 days um, after Australia. Uh, I needed that time, you know, just a little bit at home with my family, with my friends. Um, also, I was training very hard, to be honest, which I usually don't do. Uh, straight after Australia because it's a um, very hard trip, but I was really not happy with my last match. Yes. So I was very eager to come back to the gym and also to the tennis court. And uh, yeah, and then uh, two days ago, uh, I came here in Rotterdam. And again, it's, it's you know, the um, this bubble life. It's a bit boring. There is uh, not anything to do. I think it's actually pretty good uh, for the recovery because <laughs> you cannot go out, you cannot do anything. But uh, you know, for the mind, it's maybe not the best. But still, uh, it is what it is. You know, it's it's um, how things are are now. And you, and you mentioned about you know not feeling like the last match in Australia went well. Do you think that was 
down to preparation of, of doing a great preseason and then it's hard to keep that momentum? What, what are your reflections on the, the whole Australia thing that we heard so much about? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I'm not sure what happened. Um, Mackenzie obviously played a very good match. I cannot take any credit from him. Uh, I was not happy with my level, which was very strange, to be honest, because I, I played um, very good uh, four matches before that. So uh, in the tournament before, I was uh, really happy with my level. I thought I was playing uh, some good tennis, especially for the Australia, where I usually struggle. Yeah. So I was actually happy with, with my level. Uh, so I would I would just say it was kind of a bad day in the office, you know. And uh, but still, I was I was not happy about it, and uh, I just wanted to come back uh, to the court as soon as possible. Um, and yeah, I mean that's that's my um, only reflection. I cannot really say, you know, it was down to my preparation or, yeah. or to whatever because I, I played good uh, four matches before that. Okay, yeah, I beat in the first round Gilda uh, Pella which is a very tough opponent. And um, again, I was really happy with my level. And yeah, just a bad match happened. And before I move into the listeners are thinking, he's going to ask him in a minute about how he started in tennis, because that's what I normally start with. But but I have to... I have to ask you around losses because one of my one of my theories is that the majority of tennis players that don't make it to, to your level, that maybe challenger level or futures level, one of the major reasons they stop playing is because the losses hurt so much and it's so difficult to just keep getting up and keep getting up. Throughout your career, how how have you dealt with the losses? Is that is it normal to feel quite a lot of pain when you lose a match? Absolutely, yeah. I, I think it's not normal uh, not to feel any pain, you know. I think yeah. when when you stop feeling any pain uh, uh, after you uh, lose a match, I think you should stop playing tennis, to be honest. So yeah. it is normal. I, I got much better at it uh, in the last couple of years. When I was younger, I, I just couldn't get back on the track for the couple of days. Yeah. And uh, when you're on the tour and you play, let's say I play a usual year, uh, 25 tournaments per year. Uh, you know, you lose probably 23 times or even more, maybe. So if you lose every time, five days after after a match, not good for your preparation. It's not good for your tennis, for your mentality as well. So you know, I just kind of saw that. Uh, some coaches helped me to uh, kind of realize also that, and uh, they they teach me, you know, uh, that I need to be better than that and just kind of the next day go back to the gym, go back to the court. And actually, I feel much better doing that. You know, yep. I would lose before and I would be stuck in a room, um, not eating healthy. I would just feel uh, very bad about myself, but it's tough to get out of that. So I think actually by going next morning uh, just to the gym, uh, just for a run or, you know, whatever makes you feel better, I think it's it's much, much better. Yeah, because it seems as if you're you're using that pain in a positive way now, you know. So okay, I'm now going to take that pain, and that's going to get me really driving forward, getting fitter, getting stronger. Whereas I think there is a lot of players that, and and I would include myself when I played that we use that pain in in a, in a negative way. Is there yeah. is there some matches that hurt more, and where would you rank the Australia loss? in terms of how much that one hurt? Yeah, to be honest, I, it was one of the toughest one. One, one of the toughest one. Uh, definitely the toughest one was uh, against Verev um, at the US Open. Yep. I, I, I really thought I had that match. It was a big chance uh, for me 
uh, to go to the semi-final yep. of the Grand Slam. Uh, I was uh, set in a breakup and I was playing really good. I saw that he was also struggling. He was not playing his best tennis. Uh, so it was a, a very tough one on me. And uh, definitely this one in Australia, I know I, I was very happy with my level, like I said. And uh, I did see myself uh, going far in the tournament, to be honest. So it was uh, it was not easy. Uh, but like I said, you know, I decided uh, as soon as I came back, I took like one day off just to get into the time zone and uh, and to see my family. And straight after that, I was in the gym and on the tennis court because it was one of the one of the toughest losses. Yeah, you know, also by I haven't played a match for a long, long time. I mean, usually, you know, it's uh, one month before. At the Australian Open, so we were all waiting for it. It was a very big build-up yeah. for the Australian Open. It was almost uh, three months for me. But I think that's that's one of the reasons also why it was a little bit tougher than um, some other losses. And do you think that was one of the reasons why maybe you didn't perform as well, that it was built up and you had such a high expectation? Maybe, maybe. I mean, it's uh, it's not easy to say. Um, again, I would just uh, I would just say it was a bad day in the office. But I played good before that. I was happy with my level. I was feeling good. I was I was pretty healthy. So I would I would just say it was a bad day in the office. Borna, just tell me to shut up. I keep asking you about that match, and you want to you, you, <laughs> you, you want to move on, and I'm and I'm digging on that match. So I, I am <laughs> um, I'm gonna move you back now because again, I followed your journey, you know, and and as we talked about off air, you know, I saw you at lots of tournaments. You know, we we as coaches recognize and know you players when you as players are just kind of doing what you're doing. And one one thing that really hit me when I first saw you and you were probably 14 or 15 mm-hmm. and, and you were competing with guys two years older three years older yeah. and doing it very well and and I remember your dad's big strong guy you know I remember yeah. seeing him at, at, at all the tournaments and, yeah. it, and it just really struck me that you were already a professional tennis player at that age you know yeah. in, in terms of everything a, a, around you so so yeah. I guess Tell the listeners how you got from the start of when you started playing to becoming such a, I mean, you were the best in the world, really, for your age, from, from quite a young age. Yeah. Um, I started playing tennis because my father was playing uh, just for fun. Uh, so then he took uh, my sister to the tennis court after his work, and he didn't have time to uh, drop me back at home. So I would uh, actually go with them. But I was... Uh, a little bit too young to play. I was like uh, three and a half or four. And then when I when I was actually four and a half, uh, as a kid, I was uh, I was very hyperactive. So I I just said to my dad, you know, I also want to play. I want to go on the court. Uh, and uh, that's how I basically started. My sister stopped playing tennis after one and a half year, I think. And I just continued. I always loved the sport. I loved the game. I loved um, this competition. I was uh, very, very competitive. And I still am. Much less than before, to be honest. Um, you know, before I would cry on a on a practice when I lose. Uh, now it's now it's not like that. But but still, I, I have that uh, something in me. Yep. So basically, that's that's how I started. And you know, I started to play uh, some local tournaments in Croatia. I won uh, a few of them, and you know, I I became uh, the best in Croatia. I went to the little more tournaments in America, in Dallas, and it was kind of a world champion under ten. Yep. And there when I was eight or eight and a half. I'm not wow. sure. Yeah. And I won it. And that was kind of, I would say, my my first big step. And my parents also kind of 
allowed me to play even more and 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 to go uh, you know for the more trainings and we started to be more serious about it and and I told them you know listen I want to I want to be uh, best as I can be and I I want this to be my job because I love it so that was the first step and yeah I mean then you know you know how it goes you know then I played uh, Tarps which is like a world champion again but on the 14 I was playing uh, in the final I lost, so that was another thing and another, you know, big step for me. That's my story, pretty much. And if I've done my research correct, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, okay. your your dad actually stopped what he was doing work-wise and made quite a big commitment when you were around about age 10. Is that correct? That's very, very good research. Uh, I'm not sure, was it at age of 10? I would say probably it was... When I was 12 or 13, I don't need okay. to check. I'm not sure. But I do remember last couple of years of his work, which was for sure when I was 10. Uh, he was kind of already out of it, you know. He was a good lawyer uh, in the Croatia. But again, uh, he was traveling with me back then. You know, it's a very, very, very busy schedule, as you know. And also to go for the trainings with me. You know, obviously back then I was not driving myself. I was still very, very I need to go to school as well. And it was not easy. So, yeah, he, he stopped working. I'm not sure at what age. I would say yeah. probably a little bit later. But for sure, at age of 10, he kind of already, you know, stopped doing his job yeah. for real. <laughs> yeah. was more, you know, kind of um, not in a good way, I would say. Yeah, because I guess there's two ways to look at that is one players need that commitment from parents, you know, and it's, you know, it's, it seems to me quite clearly that your dad was a big, a big influence in that way. But secondly, that can also bring quite a strong pressure for a, for a young player as well. Did you feel that pressure or, or did your parents do a good job of, of keeping that from you and just keeping you on the right path? No, I never felt that kind of pressure, to be honest, just because my dad was, was tough on me, but uh, in a good way. He was always uh, objective. So yeah. when someone uh, was better than me, he would come to me and say, listen, he was better than you. You need to accept it. You need to work harder. And uh, that's that's how you're going to improve. You know, you cannot kind of cry about it and, you know, just be sad. It's not what, what you do. So I liked it. And I still have that uh, in me. It did made me the person which I am now. My mom, on the other hand, she was much, much softer, if I could call it that way. You know, I'm uh, my mom's boy and <laughs> <laughs> always kind of called me to ask how I am, you know, how are things, how is my body. Um, she wanted me to learn more on the other side as well. She was always worried about my school because obviously as I started to play very, very young, my level at the school also dropped a lot because it, it was not easy, you know, at one stage. I was doing, I was doing practices from uh, 6:30 um, a.m. to 7:30 a.m. Go to school from 8 to 2, and then from uh, 3 to 5, uh, I would play tennis again. And then in the evenings, I would need to learn. So you know, it was it was not easy uh, for me to keep that level in the school and in the tennis. And then at just at one stage, I came to my parents and I said, "Listen, I cannot, I cannot go on like this. I was sleeping five hours a day, and uh, it, yep. was, it was just too much." So did you stop school? I didn't. I didn't stop, but I, you know, it was kind of in the in the third plane. It was not my main focus, not even close to my main focus. But yeah. it was it was not my main focus to be honest. Since I was uh, probably ten or eleven, but yeah. my 
were really pushing me hard to go to school and and to learn. Uh, but then I think when I, as I got a little bit older, they gave me that approval that you know I can I can focus more on the tennis and um, yeah, just give everything at tennis because I, I was not able to uh, to do the both. I think it's super yeah. super. I'm not going to let my 10 year old son listen to this boner. You know, he's, <laughs> he's going to be sick because he knows you. He, he's obsessed with tennis. He, he's always watching YouTube and he'll be like, Courage, Courage didn't do school when he was 10 or 11. No, I was, yeah. I was doing it. I was, yeah. I was doing it. I think it was uh, when I was about 14 that, or 13 that I really said, okay, I'm going to focus to the tennis. And uh, my results were very, very good back then as well. So, I just said to my parents, it came from me. Yes. Uh, listen, I'm, uh, I'm going to be the number one in the world and uh, please let me do it because it was too much back then. And what age did you sign with an agent? Uh, my first agent was IMG. I think it was in Tarps. Uh, right, when okay. I was probably, I think it was 12, 12 and a half. So you were, so you were on that journey from, from a very early age. And that brings yeah. me into my next thing, Bona. Like, and you've, you've talked about it and again, I, I saw you, but I, I've also spoken to lots of people about you and, and, and looked into it. And I know you were, as a lot of tennis players are at a young age, they carry a lot of heavy emotion, you know, externally it comes out because you just want, want it so badly. Is that yeah. something that you changed through maturity or is that, is that an area of your game that you actually worked on with a sports psychologist, with the tennis coaches to be able to go? Because I, I would say you became very mentally tough and someone who certainly in an external view, if you saw you on court, you were very, very calm. I'm sure there's more going on inside, but is that, is that an area that was worked on? Uh, I think it came with uh, basically two things. Um, as I became older, uh, I became more aware of the things which I'm doing on the court and that they are just not not really good for me. When I was younger, I was able to cry on the court, but still focus on the next point. As I got uh, a little bit older, I, I couldn't do it anymore. And, I, and, and my coaches actually saw that it was um, affecting my tennis. So we were practicing that in the practices, try not to comment on um, any ball, on any shot, because I, I used to talk a lot on the court, uh, you know, to my coach, to my dad always as well. And and then, to be honest, there was one time when, when somebody showed me the, the video of me. I think it was also when I was 11, 12, 13, I'm not sure. And I was there, you know, on the court doing some crazy stuff, you know, just just throwing records, uh walking very strangely, basically crying, I think. And and I just looked at that and I was like, wow, it's, you know, it, it looked really, really bad. I, I didn't like that other people uh, see me like that. And that's that's where I basically decided to stop doing that. I just said to myself, I'm not going to do that anymore. It's not good for me. It's not good for my tennis. It's it's not how I want other people to see me because that not, that's not actually me. It's It's somebody else who is completely crazy on the court and who loses his mind. So nowadays, you know, there is still times when I, when I lose my mind, I get it out of my system once in, uh, in one point, uh, I pay a very big fine for that. And I just, <laughs> uh, I just move forward. And I think that's the, uh, that's the way to do it because to talk every point and, and to be in, in this state of mind, I don't think it's good for, it's, it's not good for me at least. Yeah. 
And how much do you use? Because we see we see players, and I guess what again one thing I believe in that we can't necessarily control the emotions that we that we have. You know, if we feel nervous, we feel nervous. If we feel frustrated, we feel frustrated. But but we have techniques and ways of being able to be aware. And you've used the word already tonight. Accept accept the situation and still get your mind on something that's gonna 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 help you. How important are routines that, that you use? And I'm talking about now in a match or in a, yeah. in a practice match. How, how much do you use a routine? I, I mean, I do always my serve routine, uh, my, my my return routine, which is like, I would say, 10 seconds before the shot. So that kind of uh, gets me in the right state of mind. But again, to be honest, I just always come back to to that moment of my life when I just saw the video and I decided to not do it anymore so basically now nowadays if it's a normal situation I would say you know uh, most of the time I just start to think about the next point and that's how how I do it you know because if I I just try to focus on the next point not on what happened yeah. uh, and I try to plan the next point try to you know try to see what the score what what is the best way to uh, what's the best tactic to play and uh, just try to think about that and that uh, keeps my mind very occupied yeah yeah so i cannot think about the last point which which i maybe played very poorly yeah, very good and and you talk mentioned their tactics and and the way that you play and i guess uh, i guess one thing that probably the one thing i wanted to ask you in this in this chat and and hopefully this is taken the right way in in how i ask this you know, because you won so much so young, I guess that feeling is a feeling that you got used to. It's a, I would imagine there was a certain way that you played that also helped you win matches at, at that time. You know, you you know you were you were very consistent, very solid. Yeah. But maybe to go to the the, the level of winning Grand Slams, there needs to be a little bit more risk taking. Is that something that as you've gone up the rankings that you've had a little bit of a battle with being young Borna who wins this way and being next level Borna who maybe needs to play a little bit more this way in order to, to win the big prizes? Yes, absolutely, for sure. I mean, I, I came with this game, I would say my, my best ranking with that game was uh, 33 in the world which was very lucky, to be honest. My level back then was not to be uh, 33 in the world, or actually 31, I'm, I'm not sure. But okay. my, my level was not there. It was after Dubai when I beat uh, Mare and I yeah. played uh, semifinals. Four months ago, I played semifinals of Basel as well. Yeah. Uh, but again, it was, I just, when I look my tennis back then and when I look it now, and my actually quite similar i mean you cannot compare it right. uh, i mean my forehand was terrible my backhand okay maybe it's the same uh, my service 10 times better now so you cannot compare it i would say i was new i was um, quite new on the tour yeah. nobody really knew me yeah. and you know always the first year on the tour you don't need to defend any points you you come to every tournament uh, full of uh, all the happiness everything is Kind of new, so you're always, you know, happy and uh, try your best. I mean, I still try my best, but you know, there is just a small difference from the tour. I think this is my sixth year, or even seventh, or or even uh, maybe seventh year on the tour. While back then it was my first year, so I'll come to every tournament, you know, 
uh, super happy, super hyped up about the tournament. And I think that was the reason why I came to that number of the rankings. And definitely, you know, when, when I look back then, I, I don't think it was good for me. I stopped. Uh, I, I stopped working on my game. I was kind of worried the, in the mindset, okay, you know, I'm now uh, 33 in the world. Next year, I'm going to be top 20. Next year, I'm going to be top 10. And then I'm going to be number one. But that's not how it goes. Uh, so I stopped working on, on my tennis. I was uh, not improving and I had that dip. I mean, I was stuck for two and a half or three years between 40 and 60. Yeah. I was not moving. I was there all the time, pretty much. Uh, and then I changed my team. I, I changed my mentality as well. And, you know, I, and in 2018, I had my uh, breakthrough into the top 20. And uh, it came with the, with the change of my mentality and the change of, of how I play, I think, as well. And when did that realization hit? Was it something that it hit you? Was it a difficult conversation that a coach had with you and said, Borna, that's it's not going to happen if you if you're playing like this? You know, how did that change come about? Um, with Ricardo Piatti, Ivan Ljubicic as uh, my manager, I, I started working um, with Ricardo end of 2017. Okay, that was the difficult conversation which i had where it was like okay you're gonna always be there you know some year you're gonna be 30 some year you're gonna be 60 depends how you play how lucky you are you're never gonna be top 10 you're never gonna be top 15 if you don't change something and if uh, you don't improve your game because again back then i was really not working on, on my game i would i would practice just to practice just so i can say i was practicing for the three hours but actually i was not working on Almost anything. I was I was just practicing, and it was not good. When when I look at from uh, this point, I would like it more if I had one more or two more years of being a little bit lower ranked player. Just I think it wouldn't uh, hit me that hard. That you know I'm already there. I'm already at the top because yeah. I was not. I think with that, I might improve more much earlier, and maybe I'll have uh, a, a better years. For example, 2016 and 2000. And, 17 maybe would be my better years. And how do you now go, Borna, from being, a tw- I know you're 24 in the world right now, but 12 at your highest, you, you're pretty established now as a top 20 top twenty player. How do you go from being top 20 to someone who is knocking on the doors, semi-finalist, finalist, winner of Grand Slams? Again, it's, it's not really easy and I don't have a magic pill to say if i do i would obviously take <laughs> but i don't and it's very very tough obviously um, i think also physically it's a very big demand uh, in terms of uh, staying healthy uh, through the whole year uh, it was one thing which was always bothering me i would say i had uh, i had dips in um, in my in my body you know i would struggle for one or two months with with some small injury and then it was very tough to come back so yep. i think that's the that's the one thing and again i think i i see pretty much in every shot of of my game i see some improvement yep. and again i'm working on it very hard it's not easy to change you know i've been playing one way for almost 20 years now so so to change that now with this schedule of the tournaments which we have which kind of like the most of the off-season which I have is like six weeks where you need to do also physically a lot so you, you cannot play as much tennis. 
it's not easy. So again, I think to, to improve on in pretty much every shot of my game, I see some improvement which I can do. So I think that's that's the two main things which which I need to do in the next couple of years to give myself a chance, you know, to maybe win the same or play semi-final or, or the final. What about getting rid rid of those three old boys? Have they not been there long enough? Mr. Federer, Mr. Nadal and Mr. Djokovic. Is it not time for them to move on? <laughs> Look, you know, I was hoping for them to leave for a couple of years already, but they are still there. No, joking. I mean, obviously they are um, unbelievable for the tennis and the, and the things what they are doing. It's 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 absolutely unbelievable. You know, I cannot see myself, to be honest, at that age to play on, on that level uh, and to be healthy and to be so motivated. I think it does change the time when you come to that age. I think uh, I would I, I, I will uh, change my mindset. Yeah. But again, yeah, hopefully, you know, hopefully in, in a couple of years' time, um, also the next generation, although we are not, I, I'm not uh, so much next generation anymore. I'm, I'm going to be 25 this year. <laughs> but yeah, hopefully, you know, one year I can, I can come to that level. And how and, and and being on on the tour, and it's it's such a treat to have you on the on the podcast to be able to have these open conversations because there's so many of us that are obsessed with this sport around the world, you know, and the and the Grand Slams come around and it's so exciting and we watch and and obviously we're talking about the the men's tennis here today, and it's and the big thing that does come around all the time is. And obviously Djokovic said it before the final, which I thought was quite risky <laughs> before the final to say it. But it does feel like when we come to Grand Slams, there's still quite a big gap between certainly Djokovic and Nadal. I mean, Federer's my age. So, I mean, Federer, how he's doing it, I don't know. Um, so what, what is the, what's the barrier? What's the difference? You know, for people listening, why, if we take Medvedev, why can Medvedev beat Djokovic three out of four times, best of three sets, but it comes to the Grand Slam final and actually he gets beat seven, five, six, two, six, two. Um, again, I think, uh, you know, Novak won um, 18 Grand Slams now. He played, I don't know how many finals, probably, or 40, I'm not sure. Uh, but he was in that situation many, many times. And with uh, that experience, it's much easier than somebody uh, like the Daniel or or last year in Australia, it was TM. It's much easier for him to understand the situation, uh, to accept the situation and to deal with it much better than somebody who is in that situation for the first or for the second time. So I, I think honestly, that's that's the main reason because I think we, uh, actually I cannot say we because I'm not, I was not in uh, that situation, but the other guys I know because it's the same for me when I was playing my first 250 final it was something new. I was super nervous about it, um, and it's it's just something new. And then if if you play against somebody who played or the twenty of those matches, it, it's a bit different. So I would say that's the that's the biggest difference here. Yeah. And how much of an aura did they do those guys have around those events as well? How 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 much does that affect? That's also for sure. Absolutely, I agree with that. Is uh, it's the aura which which comes with them. You, you feel it's uh, their tournament, you know. I mean, Djokovic won it nine times now, Rafa uh, on the French Open. Um, it's it's just something special. So, again, it's it's not easy to come to that court and to, and to beat them when they did so many 
so many good things on that court. And actually, that was also a funny thing. I think it was somebody already said it. I don't remember who, but I did realize that uh, I was playing Rafa in the US Open. It was 2015. I come to the court. It was night session. It was, you know, a huge stadium, unbelievable atmosphere. And I come to the court and my name, uh, my best ranking was back then uh, probably 30. He won uh, titles in Marrakesh, et cetera, et cetera. A couple of things. Then the Serafa, you know, he won this tournament in 2009, 2010. He was number one in the world. And, you know, everyone goes crazy. So it's a, it's a bit... Uh, it's a bit challenging, you know, and I think that's that's one of one of the reasons as well. You know, it's uh, it's the aura which which comes with them. It's you know, it's not easy when when you hear when you can hear those things. I mean, obviously, I know them, but it's different when you are there warming up for the match and and you hear, you know, he's a five-time champion there or or whatever. You know, it's not easy. Yeah, it's not. I'm just, I'm laughing at that situation. It's like, you just stand over there and we're just going to talk about how amazing this guy is. Yeah. <laughs> You're about to play. It's amazing, really. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's not easy. And I have to ask the question, who is going to go down as the greatest of all time? Uh, again, it's tough to say. I'm really looking forward for the next week to see how Federer is, is going to come back. I think... Uh, we all, many, many guys kind of said already many times, you know, he's done, uh, he's too old now, but then he came back, uh, he won another slam, he won another Masters 1000, so it's really, I would I would be really, really interested to see his first match and to see how he feels, uh, how he plays, he didn't play a match for one year, I think, right? Yep. Again, I think uh, Rafa and Novak, uh, they, they still have a um, couple of slams in them, even more than a couple, I think when I say couple, like four, five, six or more. Mm-hmm. And then for the Roger, you know, like I said, it's, you can never count him out. Um, so we just need to see how he feels, how he plays. Um, and then, you know, maybe I could comment more on that. But for Noah and for Raf, I definitely see them uh, winning a couple of more times for sure. And a, a little bit of insight maybe for the listeners. I know that uh, Federer has been cha- been training with Dan Evans the last two or three weeks in Dubai. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, And uh, I've heard a couple of reports that he's he's looking good, he's moving well, he's, you know, he's in good shape. So I think for tennis fans, you know, he, he can't have much more than a year or two left, Roger, but I think it would be nice to see him win at least one more before he goes out. Absolutely. I would, I would also love it, especially... Uh... In the Wimbledon. Yeah. So what happens if you play him? You play him semi-finals of Wimbledon, Borna. Then obviously no. Then I would <laughs> like to see him lose uh, <laughs> against me. But uh, like I said, uh, he's the legend of the sport. Uh, he did so, so many things for the tennis. So yeah, it would be it would be nice to see him. Uh, I will obviously watch um, his first match if I don't play against him or if I don't play at the same time in Doha because I'll play Doha as well. Yeah. Mm, so yeah, we will see how it goes. And to move to your experiences, because I guess you're at that funny age where probably 15 years ago, you would be seen as someone who was almost a bit of a veteran being on the tour for seven years. Whereas now I think you probably do come into the next gen category because of the world, the world yeah. of tennis has, has, has moved so much, but you've already achieved lots yourself. You talked about the quarterfinal at, at us open. You've won the Davis cup. 
you know, and 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 tell tell us a little bit about that Davis Cup experience. It was an amazing experience for me. Obviously, I, I remember when I was looking at the Croatian guys. I think it was 2005 when when they won the Davis Cup, and I was not there, uh, but I was watching it uh, on the TV with my dad. And I was I, I I still do remember saying it to my dad. I would really love to win, you know, Davis Cup one day. I would really love to play at least for the Davis Cup team one day. Back then, I was I was. Uh, 10 years old so you know I was, I was not even close to that and then uh, my first match in Davis Cup against Andy Murray I remember that very well as well I started to cramp on uh, three all in the first set that was very <laughs> well so yeah I mean I was you know we were um, it was really really tough on us because we were um, playing for two years Davis Cup actually for one and a half years just to come to the main group and then Again and, and back then, when uh, when uh, that last year when we won it, it was still the old format, yeah. which I think took a lot of more effort on the players, especially regarding time. You know, it was like uh, four weeks or five weeks per year on Davis Cup only. Obviously, next week you cannot play because uh, at least I cannot play. It's a it's a five set match and you're just done. So it was definitely a special feeling. It was my dream come true definitely uh, dream come true for my country you know it's it's a special feeling always because in tennis i always play for myself pretty much it's it's not like in in some other sports i'm not playing for a team i'm, I'm playing for myself okay for my small team for my coach for my physio but it's a uh, it's a bit different and then when you play for your national team it's it's something special so it was a really really good experience i enjoyed my time off after Davis Cup as well. Uh, <laughs> you needed very, it. <laughs> yeah, I needed it. I, uh, 10 days off and it was really good fun as well. I was celebrating a lot. Uh, it was um, a big, big um, also pressure on me playing semi-final and the final as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, semi-finals um, in Zadar. I won um, in the match which was uh, on a two-all. I was losing uh, two sets to one down. Again, you know, uh, Zadar is kind of my hometown and and to play that match in my hometown to win it in in some crazy atmosphere it's it was really really special feeling so there is not not much more to say about it amazing but it's like there's two sides to the coin isn't there because even in the way you told that story the fact that i guess looking at it purely from a how you plan your year as a top player, it's very difficult because it takes so much time up. But also the way you tell your story of playing this match in your hometown, you know, which is just so incredibly special, which is not going to happen again now that we don't have the Davis Cup. And, you know, so where where would you fall on that? Because it's, I guess it's, it's the lesser of the two evils in some ways. Uh, yeah. I mean, to be honest, when somebody asked me uh, from the, my professional side uh, as a tennis player only, if you would ask me that question, I would say now I like it more. It takes uh, much less on my body, on uh, my mental side as well. I remember after semi-final in Zadar, I lost uh, three first rounds in a row because I was mentally drained. I was physically drained as well, to be honest. I was playing uh, second week um, of the US Open before that. I came in Zadar started practicing for five days on the clay and, you know, playing, uh, um, what, uh, nine sets in two days. And just the whole thing, you know, it's it's very, very, 
very tiring. So you need, and then after that, you need to fly uh, to China. So it's not easy. So from that perspective, I like it now more. Uh, but definitely from the perspective, uh, which even I had in France, to be honest, in the final, it was it was amazing feeling. I think it was we were playing in front of twenty five thousand people. I think there was like two thousand Croatians. Still, it was unbelievable atmosphere. I, I you know, I, I felt it. I saw them, uh, but just the whole atmosphere, it was amazing. It was amazing, and I will definitely miss them. You know, I cannot really say which one I like more or I don't. From one perspective, I like this. From from yeah. from this, I don't like it. So it's tough. You know, I'm I'm okay with everything. I'm um, pretty easygoing guy, and I accept everything. So we will see how how it's gonna go with this. This is, yeah. this is something new. I played it uh, only one year. Uh, obviously, last year uh, it didn't happen because of Corona. So we will see how it's going to play out. But nobody can ever take that away from you. You've got that memory for life as well. Nobody, nobody, nobody. True. And that's special. My last question before we w- we go to the world famous quick fire round, Borna, which I'm sure you're very excited about, um, is my last question is around data. So analytics in tennis, you know, it's something we've spoken, we've had, we've had sports scientists, fitness coaches, tennis coaches, tennis players. And it's a question we've asked everybody on the show We've we've got mixed answers. So where, what's your opinion on, on analytics as a player? Is it something that you use? Is it a positive? Tell us about that. Uh, analytics. I don't use much. Uh, I like to look at my opponent's matches. Yep. and I always check them out at least uh, some highlights especially if I never played them if I play them I I kind of remember pretty much everything to be honest or I have I did write something in my phone about that match yeah. uh, so analytics I don't I don't use much I do follow uh, my training load so I don't know if if that's also your question I'm not sure but I'm very careful about uh, yeah. my training load as I said I had a couple of the um, small injuries which I think were, were basically because of my training load. It was not very well managed or it was yeah. um, too much or it was too less. And I think my body doesn't like that. So I'm very careful about that. For tennis, again, no, not much. I don't use any analytics. I just like to watch a match if, if I haven't seen a guy play or if, if I never play him. If I play him, I sometimes watch that match so I can see what I was doing wrong, what I was doing right. And yeah, that's, that's about it. Because I just think, you know, it can change a lot from match to match. Um, it depends, you know, on many conditions. It's not the same if it's clay. Is it hard? Is it grass? Uh, is it windy? Is it cold? It's uh, many factors there. Yeah. So if you rely too much on analytics, I think it's good to have them. But if you rely too much, it might be a problem. I agree. So as a player, so let's say, let's say you're playing quarterfinals US Open against Verev and your coach says to you on big points on the juice side, Zverev likes to serve out wide. Mm -hmm. Do you want that information or not? I would say I want uh, every information which my coach knows. And then it's, then it's on me if I'm going to use it or not. Okay. Uh, and it's the same with my technique, with uh, with the advices which he has for me on the practice courts or not. I want all the information. I like that. You know, I like to speak with with, uh, with the random people 
which I don't know so well, who are not really involved in my tennis, but know tennis. I like to speak with them and, and just, to hear, just to hear their opinion because yeah. you, know, you can always learn something new and you can always hear something new, especially from someone who is outside of your bubble. You know, yeah. once you have your team around and, and you, you always look, I think, from one perspective and you look yeah. one picture. And then, you know, I heard many, and not many times, but I heard a couple of times from, from the random people yeah. just being uh, like... Um, normal coffee uh, just to see them and then they would start commenting on my on, on my tennis and we would start to talk and I would hear something very interesting what I was doing wrong or what I was doing right because again it's it's something new it's something different and then it's it's uh, up on me if I'm going to use that advice or not it's the same with with this you know if I do want that advice but then I need to feel in that moment I need to feel and it needs to be my decision if I'm going to go there or I'm going to stay or I'm going to go to the back and it needs to be my decision because if it's not my decision, then I feel uh, very anxious and very angry. If I decided it and if I miss, I'm okay with that because it was my decision. I love that answer. Honestly, I think it's, I think that answer right there for, for people listening, tennis players, tennis coaches, you know, is such a brilliant answer. And what I take so much from that boner is, you know, how much you are taking ownership and responsibility for, for yourself, you know, yeah. and, and I think the, the way the human brain naturally works is we look to deflect blame and we look for different ways out. And, you know, I think, I think that answer is, is completely I don't brilliant. Want, I don't want that basically, you know, I don't want that, that I come to some situation where I can say to my coach, I know why you told me to go out wide. Um, you know, it needs to be my responsibility at the end of the day, I'm on the court, I'm the one playing. So, it's up on me if I'm going to take that risk or not. And in terms of 2021, are you a are you a goal setter? Do you sit down and set out goals for the year? And what are you what are you looking to achieve in 2021? I was a big goal setter uh, before, until like two years ago, where I just decided not to really set any goals on my rankings. I mean, obviously, it's, it's the top 10, to be honest. I think, you know, I don't need to say that I was number 12 in the world and obviously the next step is number 10. Uh, so I, I think that's very obvious. Now I'm, I'm not so close to that, to be honest. But again, that's that's the main goal. But that's like a big, big picture, which I don't really even have to say to my team or we as team don't need to set a goal because it's it's kind of what we know. I think it's more setting the goals um, regarding some other things regarding uh, my improvement on the courts, which shot we need to improve on the physical side, what we need to improve um, my aches in, in, in the shoulder, in, in, in whatever I have a small problems with to kind of, uh, so, so that uh, can go away and that I can practice all the time without any pain. So I think that's, I set more goals like that now rather than, you know, I want to be top five or I want to do that or that, you know, I think it's, it's very logical that I want to be top 10 next. Brilliant. Well, you've gained a lot of new followers and, and fans. Anyone that comes on Control the Controllables, you now have our full support for, for the next few years. It's been brilliant, Borna, but I would like to finish. Are you ready for our quick fire round? I am. But just to, explain me what we are doing exactly now. You, ha- you have to answer quickly. 
All right. Oh, I'm not good at it. Okay. <laughs> I like to take my time. I like to go for the towel and you know, just a bit. You can use your routines. It's no problem if you need to okay. in between. Uh, serve or return? Uh, serve. Forehand or backhand? Backhand. Tattoos or not? Is are you good. happy? Are you happy with your tattoo or not? Actually, with this one, I'm not. I think it's quite stupid. I done it when I was really when I was like 17 and a half. I I, I don't like it now. Uh, this one, uh, which I have here, uh, is uh, for my sister. I done it uh, in 2019. We have the same one. Uh, I love that one, and I have no regrets about that one. This one, I don't like it so much. That was a sneaky question, Paul. I did a lot of research on you, and I heard you say you didn't like your tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were not testing me, right? <laughs> Always on. Don't worry. Always on. What's, what's your favorite Grand Slam? Uh, Roland Garros. If you could have one shot from a current ATP player, what would it be? Novak Djokovic return. Should there be an injury timeout for players or not? Well, it is allowed. If I'm not, it, I don't it, so it is allowed, but 50% of our guests have said that they don't think there should uh -huh. be a medical timeout. Uh, I think it's, it should. I think it should. 100% of players have said yes, that should. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, it's also good sometimes to talk with the physio or if he can check you, if it's something serious or not, if you can continue or not. I don't think he can really help you, to be honest, in those uh, four minutes or or whatever. But I think sometimes it's it's good to, that he can check you and see if you have a muscle strain or is it just something, something small. ATP Cup or Davis Cup? <sighs> Tough question. Uh, still Davis Cup, but in my chance soon. You never know. Five sets in Grand Slams or three? Three. Really? Yeah. I need to now dig in. I can't. This can't be quick fire. <laughs> talk to me. Talk to me. Uh, slow fire. Slow fire. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I just think um, as a tennis fan, I mean, when I go back home, uh, if uh, if now, for example, uh, I lost early uh, in Australia, so I had I had some time to watch the matches. I was jet lagged as well sometimes, so I had I had the time to watch. And me as a tennis player who really you know understands the game, and I need to watch some matches because it's it's my job. I cannot watch it for like four hours. You know, uh, I cannot really watch it for four, four or five hours. I mean, my matches in the US Open were like one was five and a half hours. Uh, and the other one was like four hours and 45 minutes. I mean, it's not easy uh, during the day, you know, to have five hours free. So even if you want to watch the whole match and nothing else really interests you, it's not easy to organize yourself that you have five hours free. So from 2 p.m. until 7 p.m. that you have free, it's not easy. And then there's other people who, you know, want to watch tennis for one or two hours, like me, to be honest. Uh, I don't remember the last time I watched a full, full match all the time. So from just, just because of that, I like the five set matches. It's something different, you know, with the crowd, especially on the court. I had many 
very good battles and very nice memories from those kind of matches. It's, it's something special. But at the same time, I, I think for, uh, for a tennis fan, it's, it's not very interesting. A really intelligent answer that you're able to think about it from, from the outside. Just, from my perspective, to be honest. And I'm, again, I, I, never, I don't remember the last time I watched a five-hour match. I, I really don't. Yeah, but as I, I guess to, before we go back into a full conversation, Borna, I think it is. I think it's a really fascinating thing. I just, I every time there's a five set match on, I always come away saying this can't stop because it comes to such a such a place. It builds and builds and builds to such excitement, sure. and that I doesn't agree. really happen in three set matches. I agree. I, I agree with you there, but I just, I'm just worried, you know. All this build-up, how many how many people watch? People are gonna maybe just watch the end of the fifth set. I'm not sure. So that's that's my only concern. Great answer. And one rule change that you would have in tennis? Uh, no let. I hate let. Ah, okay. I hate let let courts. I think it's it's not necessary. I think there's many mistakes i mean mistakes the machine you know is is um Beep. yeah <laughs> very very questionable let's yeah. put it um it's very sensitive very yeah exactly <laughs> last question borna who should our next guest be on control the controllables Ooh, that's a good one uh let me think uh daniel medvedev I think he's a very funny guy, very interesting guy. I I, I like him. And I would like uh, to hear him speak as well about tennis. So the bit that you now have signed up to is your ability to get him you know, because it's the con. It's the it's all about because it's all about contacts, Borna. You know, we're yeah. we're not making any money doing these podcasts. This is purely just to give back to the tennis community. If you were able to have the hookup for that, then that would be brilliant. I will try my best. I cannot promise, but I will try. Borna, I've loved it. I've loved talking to you. Honestly, thank you thank so you. much for coming on. The listeners are going to com- completely love this and, and the very best of luck in Rotterdam and, and the rest of 2021. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. A big thank you to Borna Corridge for coming on the show. It really does say a lot, I think, about a player of his level to come and have such an honest conversation. And I hope you guys loved it as much as I did having the conversation. Uh, it was another classic, hey, Vicky? Yeah, I really enjoyed that one. As you say, he spoke so honestly. He was so open about his tennis and his reflections on his career. And so much to take away from, I think. What were the main points for you? There's actually, there's a lot. I've had to take a bit of time to think on this one because there's there's so many different things that I do take away from it. And I, I have to start where I wanted to ask the question. You know, we never really get an opportunity to speak to a professional player this high whilst they're in the middle of their career. And I think it's it's one thing to get a reflection of a player after their career, but to get the reflections of, he's only 25 years old, he's very much still in the heat of the battle, and he so honestly spoke about the fact that his level plateaued you know, and that certainly as a as a tennis fan, 
when I've watched Borna Koric for the last 10 years, you know, we watched him rise and rise and rise. But did he have the game? Did he develop the game to go to the next levels? And I think the fact that he said for two, two and a half years, he did plateau. And actually, it took some really honest conversations. It took a bit of a change of team and basically a change of mindset to try and add to his game. While he was already 30 or 40 in the world, I think it's such a great message and it it, it very much backs up the philosophies that we have at the academy. And for younger players, coaches, parents listening, I just leave you with one question on that is, did I get better today? And try not to get too caught up in whether you played well today. But did you get better? They're two very different things. And it was just so wonderful to hear Borna speak so honestly about that. And interesting again how he said he wished he hadn't um, reached such a high ranking so quickly. And we've heard it before, I think, specifically when you were talking to Lloyd Glasspool in that episode about the first year and how you can play much more freely in that first year. You're not defending any points. Um, like he said he was really pumped up. He was so excited getting to the tournaments. And how, you're yeah, looking back, that didn't do him any favours? Yeah, the reality is you have to go through the levels. You know, you have to go through the levels as a player, as a coach, in, in anything that you're you're doing in life. And it, it Kazakina also spoke about that, you know, that she got... She got to 30 in the world, 20 in the world, even top 10 in the world, and she wasn't ready. And and it's easy for some people to say, well, what are you talking about? You're not ready to be top 10 in the world. But there's so many other things that come with it, the expectations, you know, the management of media, the management of time. All of a sudden, you're turning up as a seed and you've, you've, you're somebody who has been has been hunted rather than being the hunter you know and 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 also people have scouting reports understand your game there's just so much that goes into the sport and having these conversations and being able to get under that has has been fascinating and it sounded like he had a, a lot of support family support as well although it did give me palpitations when he mentioned his dad giving up his job when he was so young yeah, I mean, incredible, incredible. But I, I, I guess as well, speaking to these these great athletes, you can't take pressure away, you know. And he seemed quite unfazed by it, you know. Ultimately, you need to be able to perform under pressure, you know. And there comes a time where it's like, in reality, if you can't perform under pressure, you're you're not going to be one of the best in the world, you know. And I think that comes down to the absolute ownership. That, that he seems to have taken, you know, and I, I loved it. As, as a coach, you know, I think we do, as tennis players and as people in life, we look to excuse and we look for reasons and we look in tennis that it's, I'm getting too much information or I'm in the wrong squad or I'm hitting with the wrong people or I'm playing the wrong tournaments or I get bad draws. Whereas Borna came out very clearly and said, give me the information and it's up to me how I use that information because I'm the person who is delivering in that moment. And that is ultimate ownership and that is the mindset that you need. And yeah, that came through loud and true. Well, it's the first time, yeah, I've I've seen any personality. I've only seen him on a tennis court playing matches before. So as with Kazakina, with that episode... Um, Next time I see him, I will be rooting for him. He's definitely got a fan in me. So I'm sure I'm sure it'll be a similar thing with you listening at home. So do let us let us know what you thought of that episode. We've certainly had quite well, not we, but Louis Kaye's had a lot of love on social media after his episode last week. 
Yeah, he has. And I, I mean, one, one thing that's very interesting, I mean, again, I say it all the time, but we do love the messages. We, we massively value them. And I try my very best to, to get back to each and every message that comes through. If we haven't, then then chase me on that, uh, because that's something that we do. We want to engage with you guys. You know, these podcasts are for you. But it's been very interesting seeing the, the different names now. And obviously, we've had some people that have reached out to us wanting to go on the podcast. And I guess I have to mention Judy Murray, first and foremost, who, you know, she tuned in. You know, fabulous podcast with Louis Kaye. He really is the most incredible coach, but more importantly, a great friend. He's one. He's one in several million, and 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 I actually I believe that Judy was the best man at Louis's wedding last summer. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I believe, I, I believe that to be true. We've also had a message from Libby Fletcher, who's a top British coach from the Northeast, like you, Dan. Um, she said, I was lucky enough to work with Louis for a short time. He changed the path of my coaching journey, always giving time, a great amount of knowledge. And more importantly, you knew that he cared, especially if he pushed you to find your limits. And one as well here from Gabby Dabrowski. Um, she's been a top 10 WTA doubles player the last few years. She's won the mixed doubles at Roland Garros and the Australian Open. And she's simply put, legend. Yeah, and it is. And I think, and what I did actually, Louis Kai is not on any social media platforms, but we had Johnny O'Mara commenting, Sarah Borwell, you know, a lot of a lot of ex-top players or current top players. And I actually sent them all to Louis, you know, and said, Louis, look, this is... You know, this is the reaction that you've had. And I got a very humbling reply from Louis, you know, that he feels maybe hasn't always got the best comments on social media. So he, he ignores social media now. But I just wanted to let him know how well loved he is and, and the impact that he has. And, and a big thank you to, to Louis Kaye. Yeah, it was well worth a listen. That's episode 102, if you haven't caught it yet. And coming up in the next few weeks, we've got quite a few lined up. Yeah, there's there's lots. We've got we've got Alex Ward um, coming up, coach of Heather Watson, and also was one of the top five British player. Craig Veal, a, a bright young coach in, in the UK. We've got world junior number one who's making some waves, Holger Rune, who's making big waves already on the ATP scene. And then actually somebody who is extremely high up in college tennis from Ireland, Dave Mullins, uh, who, who brings a, a completely different slant to college tennis, uh, and many more. If you can see some of the names in my phone now that I didn't have <laughs> a few months ago, it's extremely, extremely exciting. And he doesn't shut up about it. <laughs> and a, and a, a big, big thank you to you all for your continued support. I know some of you are sitting there thinking, have I won the big giveaway from our podcast that we had on our Instagram page? Well, the lucky person will be drawn out the hat later today and that will be announced on our social media platforms so watch this space but until next time i'm dan kiernan and we are control the controllables